0: Log Talk Radio.
1: and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, Abayomi Azikaway. Today is Saturday, March the 4th, uh, 2023. We are broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in once again to yet another edition of the Pan-African Journal, worldwide radio broadcast. Later on in this program, I will be bringing you our regular Pan-African Newswire report. We'll have dispatches on the aftermath of the national elections in the Federal Republic of Nigeria, where two opposition parties are contesting the results. Tunisian trade unions have demonstrated against the rise of inflation in this North African state. Somaliland medical authorities are reporting that over 150 people have been killed in recent fighting over the future of the enclave. And the Chinese National People's Congress of the Communist Party has debunked the notion of the Beijing debt traps uh, for the African continent. In the second and third hours, we begin our commemoration of Women's History Month. We look back at the role of African women during the United States Civil War. Finally, we re examine the early efforts to organize African-American women through the club movements of the late 19th and earlier 20th centuries. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. So stay tuned, and uh, we'll be back. Uh, we'll take our musical interlude uh, with the music of Embilia Bell from the Democratic Republic of Congo from the album entitled Fernando Mani. Let's listen in.
2: J'ai aimé en bien aimé. N'hésitez pas, je t'aimais mon amour. N'hésitez pas, je t'aime vert.
1: welcome back and uh, that was uh, the music uh Billy Abel uh from the Democratic Republic of Congo uh that was the album entitled nominee and you're listening to the Pan African Journal a worldwide uh, radio broadcast i am your host uh, Abayomi Zikawe. Uh today is saturday march the 4th 2023 uh, we're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown detroit that uh, we like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in uh, once again uh, to yet another edition of uh, the Pan-African Journal and uh, right now we want to move into our regular Pan-African Newswire report and of course our lead story in some of the headlines in today's Pan-African Newswire uh, talks about uh, the elections uh, that were held last weekend in the Federal Republic of Nigeria and of course there has been an outpouring of emotions by Nigerians uh, following the frustrations and pains they went through when they went to the polls uh, last Saturday for the presidential and national assembly elections. They spoke on the lessons that were learnt during the exercise, whether they would continue to trust the Independent National Electoral Election Commission under uh, the professor Mahmoud Yakubu uh, to conduct a free and fair election in the country now, Dr. Uh, Bitru Pogu said that we've learned a better lesson from last Saturday's election because the Independent National Electoral Commission chairman <clears throat> explained the provisions of the 2022 electoral law, telling us that cast votes will be transmitted in real time on the INEC server. While we look forward to that, unheard of rules were introduced. And all they did was votes allocations rather than a reflection of what the people did at the polling stations. the i n e c cannot be trusted and it's shown that it is not credible a credible entity under the leadership of Professor Mahmoud Yakubu, and the result we had was a charade. professor Mahmoud has has done shouldn't uh, be reversed, uh, but he should also be punished for trying to set Nigeria on fire through the unwholesome behavior. He put up contrary uh, to what he himself said was the interpretation of the Electoral Act of 2022. You can read this article and uh, other stories related to the recently held Nigerian uh, and National Assembly elections over uh, the Pan African News Wire. In the North African state of Tunisia, thousands of people marched through the capital earlier today, decrying an expanded crackdown on opposition voices and a proposed lifting of subsidies for food and other goods. <clears throat> the march organized by Tunisia's powerful Central Trade Union uh, was the latest challenge to Tunisia's president, Kais Saïd, uh, whose leadership of the North African nation is prompting growing international concern. Since taking office in October of 2019, Saïd has consolidated his power, dismantled the country's democratic gains, and unleashed repression against migrants from elsewhere in Africa. Marchers chanted slogans earlier today against price increases and food shortages, the biggest concerns for most Tunisians. Talks with the International Monetary Fund on an agreement to help finance the government have stalled amid political tensions. The IMF has called for the lifting of some subsidies and other reforms. The Tunisian General Labour Union, which is known by its French acronym UGTT, accuses the president. Of betraying promises made in negotiations over reforms you're listening to the pan-african newswire segment of the pan-african journal i am your host uh, abayomi Azikawe, in the horn of africa's director of a hospital in a disputed city in the somaliland region says at least 145 people have been killed in more than two months of fighting between anti-government fighters and Somaliland security forces after local elders declared their intentions to reunite with Somalia. Abdi Masjid Sugule, with the public hospital in Las Anad, uh, told the international press earlier today that more than 1,080 other people have been wounded and over 100,000 families have fled the city of Las Anad since late December. Most civilians have fled, he said. The director accused Somaliland forces of destroying the hospital's laboratory, the blood bank, and patient ward in mortar attacks. The Somaliland forces, who are positioned outside of the town, have been shelling civilian residents and medical facilities indiscriminately. No single day passes without shellings and casualties, he told uh, the international press by telephone. Somaliland's defense ministry has denied shelling the hospital. And the government has asserted it has a, quote, continuous commitment, unquote, to a ceasefire declared on February the 10th. Quote, indiscriminate shelling of civilians is unacceptable and must stop, unquote, the United Nations international partners warned last month. Somaliland separated from Somalia three months ago, three decades ago, and and seeks international recognition as an independent country, which it has not gained either the African Union or the United Nations. Somaliland and the Somali state of Portland have disputed La uh, for years, but the eastern city has been under Somaliland control. And uh, finally, uh, in regard uh, to developments related to the National People's Congress that's being held uh, this weekend in the People's Republic of China, China has never attached any political conditions, nor has it sought any political self-interest. The country is willing to continue to promote the high-quality joint construction of the Belt and Road Initiative, the BRI, for further development. Uh, Wang Shao, a spokesperson for the first session of the 14th National People's Congress, China's national legislature, said earlier today, Wang made the remarks, At a press conference when asked for comment following some countries questioning whether China's cooperation with nations along the BRI has created increased debt risk in addition to attacking China's so-called ineffective debt relief in Africa. Some countries say that China has created several, quote, debt traps, unquote, in Africa. So we can take a look uh, at what these statistics of international organizations are saying, Juan noted. According to the statistics from the World Bank and other international organizations, China is not the largest creditor of African debts. The claims held by multilateral financial institutions and commercial creditors account for nearly three-fourths of Africa's overall external debt, and they really account for the bulk of Africa's debt, one added. China has always been committed to helping Africa ease its debt pressure and actively participated In the G20 Debt Service Suspension Initiative, China is the country that has allowed for the largest levels of debt suspension among the G20 members, Wong noted. And with that, we're going to conclude the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. And in concluding this segment of our program, we'd like to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998, and since then, it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in numerous newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to uh, the Pan African Newswire, so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And if you'd like to have access to today's Pan African Journal worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Saturday, March the 4th, uh, 2023, just go to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of the Pan-African Journal for this week. Mm -hmm. Welcome back, and that was uh, the voice of Lucille Bogan, also known as uh, Bethany Jackson, uh, singing the track entitled Bo Easy. And uh, March is um, Women's History Month, and uh, this month, of course, the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast uh, will look at uh, various aspects of the women's uh, historical development and trajectory. Uh, Tonight, uh, we're going to uh, focus on African-Americans' women's history uh, during uh, the Civil War in Washington, D.C. This is taken largely from a book entitled Threshold of Liberty. Let's listen in.
3: Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Andre Gillespie. I'm the director of the James Weldon Johnson Institute. And on behalf of the staff and the visiting fellows of JWJI, I'd like to welcome you to today's Race and Difference Colloquium. Uh, On behalf of Emory University, um, I would also like to acknowledge uh, the Muscogee Creek people who lived, worked, and produced knowledge on and nurtured the land where Emory's Oxford and Atlanta campuses are now. In 1821, 15 years before Emory's founding, the Muscogee were forced to relinquish this land. We recognize the sustained oppression, land dispossession, and involuntary removals of the Muscogee and Cherokee peoples from Georgia and the Southeast. Emory and the James Walton Johnson Institute seek to honor the Muscogee Nation and other indigenous caretakers of the land by humbly seeking knowledge of their histories and committing to respectful stewardship of the land. You'll give me one quick moment. I do have a couple of announcements as well um, to share. So first, um, I want to um, acknowledge um, our uh, newest class of James L. Johnson Institute undergraduate fellows. These are seniors in Emory College who are writing honor theses on topics related to race and difference. And so this year's fellows are in place and excited um, and, and ready to learn. So I hope they can learn more about them this year. Our fellows this year are Haley Greenstone um, in Sociology, Annie Lee in History, Amon Pearson in Comparative Literature, and Stephanie Zhang in um, Philosophy. In addition, this is a a busy week. Um, Going backwards. Um, Our first Public Dialogue in Race and Difference session will be held uh, this week. Um, It's gonna be on Thursday on Zoom. For more information, please look at our website. Our theme for this roundtable discussion is going to be the twin pandemics, COVID and racism. We've put together a wonderful panel of uh, scholars from Emory and from around the country to talk about uh, the racial justice fights uh, that have especially sort of hit their apex within the last year and a half, and as well as the relationship between health disparities and the COVID-19 pandemic. Okay. Okay. So today, it is my great pleasure to welcome Dr. Tamika Nunnally to speak to us. Dr. Nunley is Associate Professor of History at Cornell University. Her research and teaching interests include African-American women's history, slavery, gender, 19th century legal history, digital history, and the American Civil War. Today, she's going to be talking about her book, At the Threshold of Liberty, Women, Slavery, and Shifting Identities in Washington, D.C., which was published earlier this year by UNC Press. This book examines African-American women's strategies of self-definition in the context of slavery, fugitivity, courts, schools, streets, and government during the Civil War era. Dr. Nunley has published articles and reviews in the Journal of Southern History, the William and Mary Quarterly, the Journal of American Legal History, and the Journal of the Civil War era. In addition to being a lifetime member of the Association of Black Women Historians, Natalie serves on the editorial board of Civil War History and on committees for the Society for Historians in the early, of the Early American Republic, the Society of Civil War Historians, and Southern Historical Association. Her current book project is entitled The Demands of Justice, Enslaved Women, Capital Crime, and Clemency in Early Virginia, 1705 to 1865. Her work has been supported by the Andrew Mellon and Woodrow Wilson Foundations, as well as the American Association of University Women. Dr. Nunley earned her undergraduate degree from Miami University um, and her doctoral degree from the University of Virginia. So please join me in welcoming Dr. Tamika Nunley.
4: Thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm gonna go ahead and share screen. Um, Today I'm gonna discuss my book and I'm gonna, Kind of provide a bit of a sampling of what is happening throughout the book and um, I'm going to start off with an anecdote that begins the book um, because I think it's a really good example of, of self-making so on August 16th 1821 Thomas Pengee commandant of the Navy Yard placed a notice in the daily national intelligence there of a slave's escape in Washington DC earlier that week Siri an enslaved woman he owned walked out of the kitchen in his residence and beyond the wharf into the streets of the district and did not return. By the time the advertisement appeared, Suri had become Suki Dean, a fugitive within the nation's capital and a free black woman available for hire. Tenji explained in the notice that Suri had changed her name to Suki and that she most likely continued to seek employment as a domestic with a local family. But she soon learned that Tenji had discovered her whereabouts. At this point, Suki Dean disappeared from the available historical record, and yet Suri was henceforth Suki, the person, person she had envisioned, fashioned, and named prior to her escape that summer of 1821. According to census records, Suki had been with the Tinji household since 1790 when the family resided in Philadelphia. By the time of her escape, she was one of six enslaved people forced to serve the Tinji household. Suki's frequent appearance in family correspondence reveals a history of everyday defiance and, more specifically, her plans to wield her own authority over her life. Her escape was the culmination of that history. Pinji's wife, Margaret, had threatened to sell her just before they moved to Washington. According to Margaret, Suki declared her opposition to the move, stating, I won't go anywhere but where I chose a master, and you cannot oblige me. Suki stayed with the family for 20 more years before she decided to leave. Perhaps she decided to remain for 20 years because she was also raising children. We know that Suki bore children within the Tenji household. We know very little, however, about their lives, the conditions of life and work in the household, their social networks within the district, or whether or not they remained with the Tenjis after Suki left. What is clear is that their mother maintained very specific ideas about her desired life, identity, and work environment. Suki's own assertion about her choices and obligations developed decades before she escaped. At the Threshold of Liberty tells the story of women like Suki, African-American women and girls who made extraordinary claims to liberty in the nation's capital in ways that reveal how they dare to imagine different lives. From the founding of the capital to the American Civil War, a history emerges of Black women and girls, enslaved and free, who developed their own ideas about liberty and, accordingly, traditions of self-definition that help us understand how they survived and lived in the slaveholding republic. They were driven by the ideals of their time and expressed their desires to govern their own lives without the oversight, force, and violence administered by others. The experiences that unfold, show that Black women adapted and shifted their lives and the lives of others in the face of unpredictability. Over the course of the first half of the 19th century, Black women disentangled themselves from bondage, using their understanding of the legal, geographic, and social scaffolds that made slavery possible. Thus, struggles for liberty appeared in various forms and under different conditions in the lives of Black women in D.C. Women and girls who were legally free navigated social norms organized by black codes and local custom, while enslaved women and girls were expected to observe slave codes and respond to the demands of slaveholders. The claims they made, the women they became, the actions they took, and the lives they created made possible the black Washington that became an incubator of equality and citizenship. Slavery shaped the social dynamics of early Washington in important ways. First, the placement of the capital on the Potomac ensured that a culture of Chesapeake slavery formed the legal and social frameworks of the city. Carved out of the oldest slaveholding states in the country, Washington adopted the laws and customs of Maryland and Virginia at its inception. As the population expanded and the capital became more developed with businesses, residences, industries, and the work of government, the district transitioned from village to southern city. Early investment in enslaved women's labor served the purposes of increasing investment in the city and developing social relations in the nation's capital. The symbolic meanings tied to the capital linked the early republic to ideals of liberty and egalitarianism, but an emerging class structure demonstrated that the aspirations of the privileged relied on the subjugation of others. African-American women in early Washington understood that the stratification of society often relegated them to the bottom, and that their labor subsequently buoyed the aims of a burgeoning genteel class. Margaret Bayard Smith, wife of the founder of the National Intelligencer and Washington advertiser Samuel Smith, mingled among the upper crust of Washington society. She was a prominent figure in her own right, and authored a number of publications featured in journals that boasted a national readership. Historians rely on the stories and letters that she penned about life in the new capital, but the fact that she relied on a number of enslaved people and servants to run her household is less obvious in Washington histories. In a letter to a friend, she related that quote, I have had a fine little girl of five years old bound out to me by Dr. Willis. She noted that quote, while I work, she plays with Julia and keeps her quiet. She is gay, good tempered, and well behaved. Julia is extremely fond of her and she of Julia, and I hope to have some comfort in her," end quote. Enslaved girls learned at an early age how to navigate the expectations of upper-class white families. The demands on black girls, white entitlement to deference, and the expectations of positive dispositions indicate ways that slavery shaped their understandings of labor and power. For the five-year-old girl, her gay and good-tempered behavior was not always a matter of choice, but a negotiation she learned early on in her socialization. Washington society took shape on the foundations of the racial and gendered power dynamics of slavery as leading women purchased, hired, and sold enslaved women. In Washington, enslaved women's experiences and relationships exposed them to information about various avenues of resistance. Wherever they went, they navigated the city with an accumulated knowledge of the homes, churches, businesses, and people that populated Washington, their mo- mobility, albeit circumscribed by slave codes, shaped their comprehension of the advantages and risks associated with escape in the area. Just before dawn on December 19th, 1815, enslaved people on F Street near a local tavern owned by George Miller. Taverns located in the federal village often functioned as sites of slave auctions and markets that marked the beginning of a grueling trek along key trade routes headed towards the deep south. The Chesapeake slave trade geographically forced the enslaved further south and west, an intense journey that funneled scores of enslaved and abducted African Americans from Washington. Before the sun appeared on that wintry morning, an enslaved woman named Anne jumped out of a three-story window just above the designated starting point of the slave coffle. The men leading the coffle, however, would have to leave without her. Anne was in no condition to walk with both arms broken and a shattered spine. Quote, I didn't want to go and I jumped out of the window, but I am sorry that I did it, she reportedly confessed. Anne not only lamented the fact that she suffered life-altering injuries, but she remained separated from her husband and children who were sold to the Carolinas. At the risk of her life and in a moment just before the traders prepared to chain her to the other enslaved people in the coffle, she saw only one way out. Anne used what limited power black women possessed at a time when their fate was often determined by a powerful law and the white men and women who employed it. This form of physical intervention changed the course of their lives in a split second, and in other instances following years of contemplating an existence beyond chains. Their actions show that the relationships torn apart by the domestic slave trade constituted a vital source of identity and belonging amidst the day-to-day drudgery of bondage. These bonds gave life in a place where death and separation loomed as an ever-present possibility. At a time when the nation embarked on a revolutionary political project, enslaved women in Washington envisioned lives that were not defined by the laws of slavery. Many black women during the early history of the Capitol, however, remained enslaved, even as white Americans expressed discomfort and embarrassment when they witnessed coffles of enslaved people walking past or acts of violence inflicted upon them. Anne's daughters were forced into the very coffle that awaited her, into the hands of the quote-unquote Georgia man, or the slave trader known among the enslaved as the notorious agent of their sale, separation, and subjection to violence. The owner of the tavern purchased Anne, and she later gave birth to more children with her husband. Although testimonies indicate that Miller, the owner of the tavern, permitted Anne to go about the city freely, legally she remained enslaved. She petitioned the court for her freedom with legal assistance from Francis Scott Key, a local attorney and author of The Star-Spangled Banner. The litigation of Anne's freedom suit also reminds us that more flexible terms of servitude did not change her desires to be free. Key played an important role in enslaved women's local freedom suits. Although he freed seven enslaved persons he owned upon his death, eight remained in bondage. He embodied the contradictions that locals wrestled with as he continued to benefit from slavery, while also arguing that free persons possessed the right to the legal protection of their freedom. Slavery itself, however, remained intact. The decades following Anne's escape signaled the emergence of the Capitol as the heart of human trafficking, where enslaved people were collected from the Chesapeake, incarcerated in the Capitol, and sent further south. More cries could be heard from the growing presence of desolate dens of bondage that appeared throughout the National Mall and along prominent blocks of the city. Indeed, slave trading firms appeared more organized and efficient than ever. And the District of Columbia offered a number of opportunities for participants involved in the business of buying and selling enslaved and abducted black persons. Firms became increasingly vital to life in Washington with establishments located along the National Mall and near the Capitol. Enslaved people were marched to Center Market on Pennsylvania Avenue and sold alongside goods and wares. Slave trader Joseph Neal placed an advertisement where he promised to pay, quote, the highest prices in cash for 150 likely young Negroes of both sexes, families included, end quote. When they were not on the auction block, they were confined in slave pens located in Washington, such as Roby's Tavern. Adjacent to Robies, a pedestrian might spot an unassuming yellow building owned by William H. Williams who funneled enslaved people into the infamous Yellow House just before they were forced to go to slave markets along the Mississippi River. Williams recommended that traders bring their enslaved cargo to the building at least a couple of days prior to, the tri- board, uh, prior to boarding the Tribune or the UNCA. John Armfield placed a notice that stated, quote, servants are intended to be shipped and will at any time be received for safekeeping at 25 cents per day," end quote. Armfield's firm posted another advertisement that informed slave owners that the ship left the port every 30 days. In addition to providing information about scheduled departures, they hope to fill those vessels with more enslaved people. The firm placed the following call, quote, persons having likely servants to dispose of will find it to be in their interest to give us a call, as we will give higher prices in cash, than any other purchaser who is now or may hereafter come into this market," quote. Hotels and taverns doubled as accommodations for guests, as well as reliable sites of confinement for slave traders in need of temporary quarters for enslaved people. The Southern Hotel was located at the end of King Street, when the District of Columbia Territory included Alexandria. One advertisement placed by the hotel offers, quote, comfortable accommodations of travelers with particular provision for gentlemen from the Southern country and for the security and support of their servants, end quote. Lloyd's Tavern, as well as St. Charles Hotel, the United States Hotel, and the courtyards of the Decatur House, the Van Ness House, and the Calorama Home, accommodated slave traders with business ties to Georgia, New Orleans, and slave markets along the Mississippi. The emergence of more professionalized trading firms and the ongoing activity of slave catchers who hunted fugitives and abducted black residents made the district a precarious site of liberty. The legal climate of Washington appeared increasingly hostile to African Americans by the 1830s. Drawing upon earlier laws established in the Chesapeake, slave codes and court cases were adjudicated in ways to ensure that black people were in no position to undermine slavery and the racial hierarchies that shaped social relations in the city. Enslaved women, however, discovered ways around these barriers. They demonstrated an awareness of opportunities for flight, as well as the legal risks associated with fugitivity in the region. This web of legal knowledge not only appears evident in the transportation of fugitive women, but the rumor mill that alerted them of forthcoming opportunities for flight. The escape of 77 enslaved people on the schooner Pearl appears regularly in histories of Washington. The incident not only offers insights into the most notable escape in attempt history, but the ways that black women navigated the opportunities for self making through collective resistance. The daughters of an enslaved mother and a free father, Mary and Emily Edmondson, were two of Paul and Amelia Edmondson's 14 children. Paul was manumitted by his former owner and by, quote, economy, industry, and thrift, end quote, obtained and maintained 40 acres of land. One of the Edmondson sons, Hamilton, had already been sold south, and five of their daughters were manumitted through purchase and resided in Washington. When she was 15 years old, Mary, along with her sister, Emily, were hired out by their owner, Rebecca Culver, to work for wealthy families in the district. They likely found moments to interact with their free siblings and soon discovered plans for an escape on the Pearl. Mary and Emily, along with 71 other enslaved women, men and children, boarded the the Pearl on April 15, 1848. On the docks of the nation's capital, they joined the largest documented slave escape in American history. Mary and Emily's stories of self-making were tied up in the efforts of others who tried to become free. It all began with Daniel and Mary Bell. Daniel earned enough to purchase his freedom, but his family remained enslaved. Mary Bell and her children were freed according to the terms of their former owner's will. But when they attempted to claim their freedom, the wife of their former owner contested the manumission terms of the will. When the courts failed to produce the desired results, African Americans did not shy away from extra legal strategies to become free. With no other option than to arrange an escape, Daniel Bell covered the necessary expenses for Daniel Drayton to secure a vessel that would take them north. The Edmondson sisters also joined the escape because they recently learned that they might be sold off as prostitutes in the fancy girl trade in New Orleans. Their experiences with being marketed as both sexualized and fetishized human property marked many of the ways enslaved girls and women were commodified as potential prostitutes or high-end servants in the domestic slave market. Word of mouth reached the girls in time to evade these projections. As one news account noted, someone, quote, communicated the opportunity to them and to several others. They communicated it to their friends, and when Captain Drayton came to sail." Instead of having seven passengers as he had expected, he had 10 times that number, end quote. These were the networks of navigation, enslaved and free African-Americans, local white allies, and Northern friends willing to spread the word, risk discovery, and finance the excursion along the Atlantic seaboard. Networks of communication among enslaved and free black people created a tradition of anti-slavery activism in the Capitol. Black people such as Daniel Bell and Paul Jennings, a formerly enslaved servant, owned by President James Madison, spread the word, informing Black locals of the organized attempt on the Pearl. White supporters such as Garrett Smith, William Chaplin, and the ship crew Daniel Drayton, Edward Sayers, and Chester English, secured a vessel for their transport. The planned route took the schooner 100 miles down the Potomac River and then 125 miles north on the Chesapeake Bay towards the free state of New Jersey. The morning after their departure, reports of missing fugitives erupted in the city. According to John Painter, an enslaved man named Judson Diggs furnished the mob of outraged slave owners with information about the plans for escape. A group of angry slaveholders sailed out on the Salem to find the vessel near Point Lookout in Maryland. Emily and Mary and the 75 enslaved people on board the Pearl were imprisoned, and Daniel Drayton, Edward Sayers, and Chester English were tried in the criminal court of the District of Columbia for stealing. English was dismissed largely because he worked as the hired cook and help on the crew and claimed that he didn't completely understand the purpose and intent of the voyage. Sayers was acquitted on two counts of slave stealing, but having incurred fines and legal fees amounting to over $10,000, had to remain in jail. Drayton pled guilty for the transportation of slaves outside of the district and was convicted on two counts of slave stealing. Drayton and Sayers were imprisoned due to the hefty fines and legal fees they incurred while on trial but were later granted a pardon from President Fillmore at the endorsement of Massachusetts Senator Charles Sumner. Slave traders confined to the Edmondson siblings at a slave pen in Alexandria in preparation for the voyage to the slave markets in New Orleans. Traders sold their brother Samuel Edmondson in New Orleans, but the remaining siblings ended up returning to Baltimore as a result of a yellow fever outbreak. Philanthropic efforts led to the purchase of Richard Edmondson, who reunited with his wife and children in Baltimore. The slave trading firm undoubtedly regarded sisters Mary and Emily as too lucrative an opportunity to pass on. They held the potential to generate a handsome profit if they sold in the fancy girl trade in New Orleans. If the fancy girl trade did not attract buyers, they certainly retained their value as potential servants in some of the wealthier homes of Louisiana. In the meantime, the two sisters were forced to labor as washerwomen and kept in the local prison during the hours in which they were not employed at work. Persistence from their father eventually led to an arrangement with the firm that allowed Paul Edmondson to purchase his daughters at the impressive sum of $2,250. On November 4th, 1848, The Edmondson sisters traveled to New York, and with the assistance of the Beecher family, they attended the young ladies' preparatory school at Oberlin College. At Oberlin, they began the process of self-making as legally free young women. Education offered both social and economic mobility in preparation for possible careers in teaching. The Edmondson sisters traveled throughout the North to attend abolitionist rallies and protest the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850. Anti-slavery activism became an important aspect of their new world as free women, but for one of them, the advent of a new season quickly came to an abrupt end. In 1853, after having survived the dramatic developments of the Pearl, Mary died of tuberculosis at the age of 20. Her death led Emily to return to Washington, where she worked with a school for African American girls and married her husband, Larkin Johnson. They lived in Anacostia, where they became founders of the Hillsdale community and retained close ties to Frederick Douglass. From the founding of the capital, black and white Washingtonians began the work of building a robust set of civic, of of religious, civic, and educational institutions. The vibrant African-American institutions they created made Washington an attractive place for black migration from other southern states. This was of tremendous importance to black women. Free black women and girls faced limited access to economic and social mobility, but an education opened up possibilities for a vocation in teaching and participation in social reform. In Washington schools, schools were, places, were spaces in which black girls explored their own ideas, opinions, and values, not only about themselves, but the worlds in which they lived. In their learning, they were steeped in literature, science, Theology, reform, and the heated political debates of the 1850s. In Martilla Minor School for Colored Girls, one student, Marietta Hill, was particularly engrossed in the political affairs of the Union. In 1854, Congress passed the Kansas-Nebraska Act, which allowed those who settled in the territory to decide whether or not to permit slavery there. Girls like Marietta Hill remained attuned to the latest political debates about slavery, understanding that the fate of the institution shaped the contours of their own experiences in Washington. Hill shared that, quote, sometimes a dark cloud seems to overshadow me, and since the Nebraska bill has passed, the cloud appears thicker and darker, and I say, will slavery forever exist, end quote. Slavery seemed to meet no end as Congress went back and forth with one compromise after the next. As long as slavery existed and African-Americans lacked equal rights to citizenship, their lives remained circumscribed by severe legal and social parameters. But her resolve remained steadfast and she declared, quote, it shall cease, it shall and must be abolished. I think there will be bloodshed before all can be free. And the question is, are we willing to give up our lives for freedom? Will we die for our people? We may say yes, end quote. Marietta's assessment of the political climate was eerily prophetic. Bloodshed, not just in Kansas, but on Harper's Ferry and eventually Fort Sumter, would usher the Union into war. In the meantime, Minor provided an intellectual environment that made space for the girls to share their thoughts and frustrations as well as their candid opinions about the national state of affairs. Emily Edmondson joined the Minor School as a teacher and likely mentored many of these young girls. They offered critiques that ranged from political events to everyday insults they experienced in Washington. Minor hoped to provide the kind of education that positioned the girls to articulate claims to equality in the Capitol. Making education accessible to black girls stirred social and political anxieties among white locals concerned with the future of the country. Regarding this school for black girls, the mayor of Washington, Walter Lennox pleaded that quote, we cannot tolerate an influence in our midst which will not only constantly disturb the repose and prosperity of our own community and of the country, but may even rend asunder the union itself." End quote. He appealed to the local government to wield their influence to undermine the work of minor school. Lennox implored that, quote, such a protest it is the duty of our corporate authorities to make. Its beneficent effect may be to persuade the supporters of this scheme to abandon its further prosecution, end quote. Lennox claimed that Minor and her students left white residents no choice, warning, quote, the responsibility will be with those who, by their own wanton acts of aggression, make resistance a necessity and submission an impossibility, end quote. Thus, the mayor of Washington validated the violent responses of white mobs that the girls confronted on a daily basis. Minor's school inspired violent retaliatory responses that involved racist and sexist epithets aimed at the girls. One white pedestrian balked at a group of the students and referred to them as impudent hussies and demanded that the landlady turn out that N-word school or be mobbed, end quote. The man projected a sexualized and wayward representation of them in the broader public to justify their removal. Students' responses to local harassment do not appear in the existing record, but perhaps their thoughts remained in the purview of their private lives. Indeed, historian Darlene Clark Hind explained that The ways that 19th century black women embraced a culture of dissemblance where they protected their inner lives and reactions to sexualized insults. These girls most likely deployed a number of strategies for survival, many exhibited by African American women within their respective communities. Sources allow us to see that students took seriously the work of learning and regarded such efforts as an indictment of of the society that deprived them of the basic privileges afforded their white counterparts. When lectured by the white wife of a clergyman on the importance of being educated according to one's social status, one student, Lizzie, responded, quote, I would rather be learned than be contented and be ignorant. I will be learned. I must be learned. I would not ask this, as colored people should not enjoy every right as white people, end quote. Lizzie's commitment to education coalesced with her claims to citizenship. This inextricable connection between learning, enlightenment, and rights underlies the pedagogical project of the minor school. Minor hoped to provide the kind of education that positioned the girls to articulate claims of equality and citizenship in the capital. In a context where few girls exercised the privilege of attending private school, and most black girls were expected to serve at the pleasure of white families, the educational achievements of black girls challenged the racial and gender hierarchies of the district. Once they graduated, they made tremendous sacrifices to form their own classrooms. In 1857, Anne Washington, a graduate of minor school, opened a school nearby. Sources describe Washington as a woman of refinement with an excellent aptitude for teaching. She gained notoriety for the way she operated her school, quote, with a system and superior judgment, giving universal satisfaction, the number of her pupils being only limited by the size of her room, end quote. The room, located in her mother's home, speaks to the resourcefulness of black women teachers, who did not have access to the philanthropic connections that Minor employed. Washington's mother was a washerwoman who made limited income in a labor economy that relegated black women to the bottom of the wage-earning spectrum. Sources offer that her mother, quote, a widow woman, is a laundress, and by her own labor has given her children good advantages, though she had no such advantages herself, end quote. The growth of the free African-American population meant that black women and girls increasingly contended with the limitations of liberty in the nation's capital. Indeed, they navigated social and economic challenges in different ways. Minors girls were afforded opportunities to attend school, while some girls and women earned a living in the local entrepreneurial sex and leisure economies. At the beginning of the war, the Provost Marshal recorded 450 registered body houses and the Evening Star reported 5,000 prostitutes working in Washington City alone, not including the 2,500 women in Georgetown and Alexandria who worked in the wartime sex economy. Although Alexandria retroceded from the district in 1846, the connections to the capital and the close geographic proximity still made prostitution networks within reach to Union soldiers in the capital. Of the overall number of prostitutes in the city, at least a third were characterized as, quote, street of a character of unblushing indecency, never known before in Washington, end quote. The women arrived in the capital from both Southern cities as well as Northern metropoles, such as New York, Boston, and Philadelphia. Poverty brought on by, brought on by the war presented challenges that led women to prostitution. The influx of African-Americans meant an inflated job market and a large number of black women desperate to earn a living. Those looking for jobs or simply eager for any source of income, food, and housing looked to the burgeoning sex economy. The sex and leisure economy of the district converged and clashed with the union military effort. Police arrested a soldier named Edwin Perry for, quote, associating with colored prostitutes in the fourth ward of the city, end quote. On September 12, 1862, Mary Ann Jackson, a quote-unquote colored nymph, was arrested by military authorities and, a brief, and served a brief stint in jail. Jackson, along with many other black women, were arrested particularly for their solicitations of soldiers during the Civil War. These women interacted intimately with members of the military, whether through transactions of sex, the selling of goods, such as liquor, acts of theft, or through disciplinary policing. In this case, military authorities were not only charged with supervising regiments, but disciplining both soldiers and prostitutes to maintain order between the army and local civilians. The sex and leisure economy increased black women's interactions with the union military and local officials as they visibly and boldly solicited clients near the city center. Black prostitutes repeatedly frequented the jail and court for their disruptive enterprises in the capital, military encampments or afforded black women opportunities to offer commercialized leisure, sex, and goods, or they might help themselves to the supplies and foodstuffs provided by the government. Accused of stealing military goods, police arrested three black prostitutes, Josephine Pickton, Elizabeth Wilson, and Sarah Gonis together for possessing property belonging to the military. Similarly, police arrested Annie Grant for robbing a drunken soldier of 50, 50 cents. Black women prostitutes seized various opportunities for financial and material gain, capitalizing on the resources of the military and enlisted soldiers. These modes of improvisation meant that some women might resort to theft to avoid sexual encounters or in instances where clients refused to pay. From police arrests to organized raids, black women emerged as participants in the lo- in local crime and vice. A register kept by officials featured 12 quote-unquote colored body houses with addresses that were difficult to decipher because of their location among hidden alley communities. Residential blocks in 19th century Washington typically included streets within the block that formed a T or H shape. More noticeable structures face outward towards the street, but behind the houses and buildings, inhabitants, particularly those associated with the quote-unquote lower classes, lived and congregated in the smaller configurations of the alleys. The alley streets typically measured 30 feet wide and structures stood within much closer proximity to adjacent buildings. While solicitation occurred near Union military camps and along main thoroughfares with high foot traffic, the quarters in which sex and leisure took place existed beyond the prominent avenues and into the alleys where makeshift structures occupied by black inhabitants remained out of sight. For instance, Mrs. Seal Brown and Theodosia Herbert, Rebecca Gaunt, Sarah Wallace, and Josephine Webster appeared in the register with establishments located in the alleys. Union officials struggled to maintain oversight of the whereabouts of prostitutes because of the hidden geography of sex and leisure. Those engaged in underground economies and those seeking refuge during the war created an overlapping demographic crisis for the nation's capital. While entrepreneurial economy shaped the dynamics of improvisation and self-making of free women working in Washington, that same spirit of improvisation and self-making translated into the efforts of enslaved women who crossed the borders of the district and made direct appeals to the federal government. For bond women, emancipation and the prospects of new opportunities for self-making were on the horizon. On December 16, 1862, Emmeline Wedge filed petitions on behalf of herself and her two children and her sister, Alice Thomas, who were all enslaved on the property belonging to Alexander McCormick. McCormick refused to take advantage of the compensation provision of the new law the year it took effect in Washington, DC, and Emmeline saw an opportunity. He reluctantly appeared before the clerk of the court after receipt of a summons. According to court records, McCormick, quote, denied the constitutionality of the Emancipation Act and said that he would bide his time until it was declared unconstitutional." Besides, he was a citizen with rights to property, and why would anyone take seriously claims made by an enslaved woman? Just before his case was decided, McCormick reappeared before the clerk and commissioners of the district, and for the first time formally contended with Emmeline's liberty claims. In this case, emancipation threatened the property rights of slaveholders and excluded white residents more generally, From any democratic processes that decided the fate of slavery in Washington. Ideas about liberty and bondage were inextricably tied to place and Washington was changing. African-American women like Wedge assumed a new role, not completely carved out for them, but with anticipation and even hope for what could be. Working in Wedge's favor was the fact that Congress abolished slavery in the District of Columbia in 1862. For black Washington, the years of waiting for Congress to exercise such power ended at the beginning of the Civil War in spite of arguments against the constitutionality of local emancipation. With the exodus of a strong contingent of Democrats from following Lincoln's election, the Republican-dominated legislative body passed the measure with votes at 29 to 13 in the Senate and 92 to 38 in the House. Although the bill passed by a significant margin, the opposing votes... Underscore an underlying truth about this era. Historically, white Americans expressed hostility toward the idea of black liberty in both antebellum and wartime shifts towards emancipation. Scholars have pointed to the rehearsals of gradual emancipations in the north and prevailing attitudes against racial equality. While many Americans embraced the prospect of ridding themselves of slavery, the manifestations of black women's self-making in times of emancipation placed them at odds with dissenters who expressed concerns over equality, quote-unquote, amalgamation, and citizenship. This sentiment rang true for white locals in Washington. The Emancipation Bill made provisions for compensation to slaveholders to the tune of $300, along with a financial incentive set at $100 for former slaves to relocate to another country. Still, even as some African Americans entertained the possibility of colonization, they decisively charted their course in the Union and remained in the capital. Accordingly, this marked the moment that white locals in Washington dreaded most. It might appear that the struggle for liberty ended with local emancipation, but Washington was the citadel of the Union and would apply to those enslaved in the city in 1862 sent signals to enslaved people and slaveholders alike throughout the geographic region. For most of the country, slavery and the fugitive slave law prevailed, but slaveholders still felt threatened by what they saw happening in Washington. When Congress legally authorized the emancipation of a population of roughly 3,000 or so enslaved people, countless others took advantage of the measure. White Washingtonians braced themselves for a tidal wave of refugees. Black women, both refugees and recently freed, recognized in an an important opportunity. The facts of Emmeline Wedge's case reveal the unique geographic position of Washington and the neighboring Chesapeake counties as a distinctive geopolitical battleground over liberty during the Civil War. As an enslaved woman, Wedge challenged both the legal validity of her enslavement and forced McCormick to contend with her testimony against him. The Supplemental Act, passed in the summer of 1862, permitted enslaved women in the District of Columbia to testify against white men and women for the first time. Regarding the actual case, evidence showed that McCormick's farm was located along the border dividing the district from Maryland, and that just one day after the Emancipation Act became law, he instructed the slaves to reside on the Maryland side of his property. According to the records of the Board of Commissioners, he built a small tenement for them on the Maryland side, while his main living quarters remained in the district, along with the cow pen and other buildings included on the homestead. While McCormick generally prohibited enslaved people from traveling to the district side of the property, it was proven that Alice was, quote, required to drive cattle from the pasture to the cow pen, which was located on the district side, end quote. Unidentified witnesses also testified that they had seen the women and children in McCormick's Washington home daily and that for approximately seven or eight weeks, Emmeline and her family had resided in the district with an older man also bearing the last name Wedge, who was identified as the father of Emmeline's husband. The Board of Commissioners ultimately acknowledged Emmeline's right to claim freedom under the Emancipation Act of 1862. Emmeline's case is illuminating because, among other things, Emmeline's husband and father-in-law did not file the petition, but she instead took the initiative to make her own liberty claims. But this was not unusual. In her work on gender and the political dynamics of Reconstruction, Laura Edwards argues that, quote, African-American and common white women formed a loud, visible, and vigorous public presence both during and after the Civil War, end quote. Patriarchy did not always feature prominently in black women's quest for self-making or liberty. To the contrary, freed women in the moment of local emancipation filed numerous claims and complaints on behalf of themselves and members of their families, initiating the transition of entire families into liberty rather than wait on the authority of men to do so. Throughout the course of wartime emancipation, refugee women and freed women navigated the power dynamics that made liberty possible in order to secure it for themselves and their kin. Former bondwomen employed their knowledge of the geographic and political significance of Washington as they approached officials of the government to make their claims. These experiences were distinctive in how they transformed their own futures as well as the significance of the nation's capital as a site of liberty. For for these women, liberty was the work of self-making, the legal and extra legal steps they took to realize liberty set in motion an array of claims to their lives and labors that challenged their racial and gendered exclusion. The stories of these women do not fit into neat historiographical themes, but show the rather complicated and unanticipated directions in which their lives took shape. The experiences of Black women offer insights into the ways that our assumptions prevent us from fully understanding the scope of liberty's reach and its deficiencies. We risk forgetting that these women thought about this idea repeatedly, even as they imagined, washed, cried, ironed, hummed, cooked, laughed, nursed, and suffered. For centuries, the liberation struggle, spanning generations and reaching back before the country's founding, shaped the Black American experience. The contagious yearning for liberty that shaped the hopes of millions did not simply appear because a government or society allowed it to. Furthermore, the tensions created by those deprived of it play an equally important role to the manifestations of liberty in the nation. This history of black women tells a story about the obstacles that come with the ways that slavery, race, and gender posed barriers to liberty and the manner in which black women and girls in Washington responded. Liberty then remained an ongoing work in progress. Thank you.
3: Thank you very much for a great talk. Um, Now is our time for a Q&A. Um, If you are new to the colloquium, we can use the Q&A function in the Zoom webinar feature to allow us to um, ask questions, and I'll just read your question to Professor Nunley. So, our first question is from Edgar Randolph, who asks, Could you speak to the need to be rational and intelligent in order to use networks of navigation, rather than emotional or feeling? How is Washington both a place of opportunity as well as danger? And uh, what were enslaved and abducted Black people in Washington?
4: Um, So I'll start with the last one. Um, Enslaved people were people who were legally enslaved and abducted um, were, um, abducted persons were persons who were legally free but who were still um, funneled into the domestic slave trade. Um, and so I of course, you know enslaved people are are all abducted, right? And so using that specific term is really just to accommodate the legal definitions of that time, but not not to sort of uh, distinguish enslaved people from being abducted themselves. Um, and in terms of your question about um, rational and, and intelligent, um, I think that um, I I don't talk a lot about um, enslaved women being um, rational because I I think that gets into some epistemological territory where you have to be specific about who gets to define what is rational, Um, but I do think that um, they are purveyors of knowledge um, in ways that are really important uh, and, and really decisive in how they approach their strategies for survival um, and, and self-making. I think that feelings, intelligence, knowledge, all of those things, emotions, all play into the decisions of these women to um, embark on the journey that they've created, right, and that they've decided to take. Um, and it looks different, you know, for other for other women, um, but it just depends on the context. Some women, right, are violently pursued. Um, by certain enslavers um, in ways that cause them to escape without ever having to plan that escape, right? But then there are some who, you know, contemplate it, you know, over many, many years and, and decide to act upon it.
3: Thank you. There are other questions. I don't know if this extends beyond the period in which you study. Mm-hmm. Um, but how does the agency that you see in the people that you're studying manifest uh, post-emancipation? So how are your subjects uh, uh, contributing to, to 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 Black life in D.C. and sort of using some of the skills that they have, kind of beyond uh, beyond what you were able to share with us today?
4: You know, I think um, I don't I don't really go past um, the Civil War, but if I were to think about the immediate You know um post dc emancipation moment i think that there are an array of responses you know first there's the woman on the cover of the book elizabeth keckley who um, organizes women at church at 15th street you know and and they're you know gathering funds gathering resources to support um the refugee um women men children um, who are coming into the capitol and so i think that the instinct to organize and to mobilize resources is very much present and i think that has less to do with post emancipation it has more to do with the kinds of organizing that black women were doing um well at the beginning of the 19th century um so in some ways they rose to the to an occasion that they they were hoping would would happen right it would would manifest um but those um, that those institutional frameworks for organizing were already put in place in D.C., which makes D.C. a really fascinating place, right? Because they're putting the, they're creating these institutions at a time where um, D.C. is becoming, you know, really important place for the domestic slave trade. Um, and then also, if you're thinking about um, refugee women, um, what I think is really interesting is that once it becomes clear that the Emancipation Act is passed. Um, that they feel as though they have a direct relationship with the government now, right? And so this, it's this very interesting political interpretation of the social contract. Um, and so they make their way to the nation's capital um, because they expect to be able to get a hold of the president or get a hold of the government, right? Um, whatever the government might look like, you know, whether it's the board of commissioners or, you know, eventually later in the war, um, the the Freedmen's Bureau, right after the war. Um, And so they look for formal channels um, to begin to articulate, you know, um, their claims and to secure um, their own freedom and the freedom of loved ones. Um, They come up against the courts as well, um, because many of the um, slaveholders in the Chesapeake are um, making claims to their children. Um, They're claiming that these children are orphans. Right, or that their parents are not uh, equipped to be able to parent them. Um, and so they're coming up against the courts as well. And so I find what I found surprising was just um, just that kind of that push to um, make a direct sort of uh, line between themselves and the government to establish that relationship more formally was something that was important to um, to people regardless of you know, where they were prior to the war, you know, if they weren't Elizabeth Keckley and they were, you know, formerly enslaved woman coming in from Virginia, the instinct was to get to D.C., right? And um, to get connected. Um, but then there are some folks who actually um, go into the sex and leisure economy. They go into these underground economies because they need to eat. Right. And they need to find a place to lay their heads. Um, And so I think um, the earlier question talked about Washington, D.C. as a site of danger and a site of opportunity. And I think that, um, you know, as much as right, there's this excitement about emancipation and and these hopes that when you get to D.C. That, um, that that will automatically apply to you. There's also the the, the scarcity created by the war. There's poverty um, and there is danger um, in entering either the sex and leisure, you know, uh, commerce or, you know, just trying to survive, right? Um, because they're still being policed and they're being policed by
3: Union soldiers and
4: local, local folks.
3: Thank you. Mm-hmm. This question is from Sherry Mackinson. Sherry Mackinson, excuse me. Can you talk more about the sex and leisure economy and black women's choices to engage in this economy to make ends meet? How mm-hmm. does that relate to still being enslaved? I'm also thinking of how contemporary anti-sex trafficking efforts use the language of modern-day slavery.
4: Mm. That's a very interesting question. It's So it's, you know, sometimes, the, you know, the way that we write and think about black women's history, you know, it really is about the sources Um, And, you know, I argue in the book that, you know, to exclude, you know, black women engaged in the sex and leisure economies would would render them generically absent because they they were everywhere, um, particularly before the war, you know, and then of course, during the war. Um, And what that really tells us is about, you know, the social, the economic mobility of black women, what is available to them, what is possible. Um, for them in order to survive um, the question that i had um, uh, you know with the book was if black women once if black women ever become free then what what do you do you know does everybody become elizabeth keckley does everybody become you know uh, this black woman organizer you know who's mobilizing her politics and you know fighting for abolition and, and women's suffrage and the truth of the matter is that the majority of black women are not doing that um, they're trying to survive
1: Welcome back, and uh, that was uh, Professor Nunley uh, discussing her book, uh, On the Threshold of Liberty, uh, looking at the role and status of African women uh, during the Civil War in Washington, D.C. You're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, worldwide uh, radio broadcast. Uh, I am your host, Abayomi Zikawe, and, of course, we're here on uh, Saturday March 4th, uh, 2023, we're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit, and uh, this is uh, Women's History Month, and uh, all during this month, uh, we'll be handling a lot of this uh, historical material for the benefit uh, of our listening audience. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of our program for this week.
5: Blue When we parted I never fought My baby go boy He left me crying skies were gray Now they're lighter And today Things are brighter I feel just like shouting. I want to shout, Hey, hey cock I want my news I'm through Wearing a frown. My baby's back My baby's back Oh cock I'm off my news, and soon my arms will be around. My baby's back, my baby's back. I made my mind up, mind up. We were all through before. Then I'd wind up, wind up, loving him more and more. can a this. I'm off my news, I'm through dressing in black. Cause baby's bag. my baby's back. on air. my baby's back, my baby's back, I can do, do. we're we'll building coolers, I bought a new Morris chair, my baby's back.
1: Support now Bike, and oh, baby's back. Welcome back, and uh, that was the voice of Evelyn Priya. And, of course, you're listening to the Pan-African Journal, worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Saturday, March 4th, uh, 2023. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. And uh, March is Women's uh, History Month, and uh, all during the course of this month, we'll be bringing you uh, programming uh, to reflect the lifetimes, contributions, and status of African women uh, throughout history and in contemporary times. Right now, we want to look back on the beginning of the Independent uh, Organization of African American Women through the National Association of Colored Women's Clubs. We're going to focus on the Phyllis Wheatley Club. Uh, which was organized uh, in Buffalo, New York, during uh, the turn of the 19th and 20th centuries. Let's listen in.
6: uh, Hello, and welcome to
7: the Buffalo History Museum's M&T Third Friday program. My name is Matt Holland. I am the program and volunteer coordinator here. Tonight we have a pre-recorded presentation from Dr. Barbara Seals Nevergold, historian, activist, educator, and co-founder of the Uncrowned Queens Institute. She will be presenting on the Phyllis Wheatley Club. We hope you enjoy. Thanks.
0: Thank you, Matt, for that introduction. Uh, I want to thank also the Buffalo History Museum for the opportunity to talk about uh, an organization, and tell the story about an organization of African American women who persisted through um, many trials and tribulations uh, and made tremendous contributions to the African American community and to the community at large in Buffalo, um, the Phyllis Wheatley Club. And still, they persisted. In 1999, um, I was introduced perhaps to an activity of the Phyllis Wheatley Club that I was not aware of. Now, this is about 100 years after the organization was founded. And at that point in 1999, I was part of an organization called the Women's Pavilion Pan Am 2001. We were planning a series of or uh, activities that we're going to commemorate and celebrate the role that women played in the Pan-American Exposition of 1901. And one of the members of that organization told me about a protest rally that had been held by a group of black women. And I thought, wow, 1900, you had black women that had the audacity to stage a protest rally? And so as we talked a little bit more about these women and the they are obviously the Phyllis Wheatley Club. We also talked about the fact that what they were doing was trying to advocate, or they weren't advocating, for the placement of the Negro exhibit at the Pan American Exposition, And at the time, that, that uh, exhibit was in Paris, at the Paris Exhibition. So that sparked my interest and begin my journey, I would say, to uh, finding out more about this organization. Now, as I said, they were organizing in 1900, 1899, but they were an affiliate of a national organization that wasn't too much older, the National Association of Colored Women's Clubs. So let's talk a little bit about that organization because it's important to understand the foundation for the Phyllis Wheatley Club being the NACW. The NACW uh, really re- formed in 1896 in response to a public letter that was written by an individual by the name of James Jacks, a journalist who was the president of the Missouri uh, Press Association. And Mr. Jacks wrote this letter that um, described African Americans as being liars and thieves and the women, especially as being prostitutes. You can imagine uh, the uproar that that caused within the black community. Uh, I would also point out, before I go on to say a little bit more about that uh, spark that ignited in the community and started the National Association of Colored Women's Clubs, that black women had been organizing, even before emancipation, certainly the North, those free black women were organizing and forming self-help groups that provided mutual aid, that provided assistance and benefits to the community. And they have been doing this for many years, as well as as, uh, cultural, hosting cultural events for themselves and for the community. So they were not strangers at all to the club movement, but there was not a national organization until uh, the National Federation of Afro-American Women, the National League of Colored Women in the New Era Club came together to formulate the National Association of Women's Clubs. And you can see that their goal was broadly, you know, again, to um, inform, uh, educate, uh, uplift, support, not just women, but through women's activities, the community and the morality, the religious and social welfare um, of members of the community and protect the rights of women and children in the community and to educate. um, They uh, had as their motto, lifting as we climb, um, indicating that what they saw as the responsibility of women to particularly those women who were more advantaged, to go back and to uplift other members of the race. And so this is how the Phyllis Wheatley Club then became part of the National Association of Colored Women's Clubs Um, in 1899. They formed in Buffalo and they were the first affiliate uh, of the NACW to form in Buffalo, although not the last one, there were several others. Uh, I found this photo of the Phyllis Wheatley Club in a newspaper in 1900, March of that year, as a matter of fact. And as you can see, um, the women uh, posed uh, for uh, this photo, and they did so in what they called their clubhouse. And interestingly enough, their clubhouse was the Michigan Street Baptist Church. And so I have a photo of the the, uh, the church without uh, the uh, the club members and with the club members. Also, I want to point out that in 1900, 1901, um, the population of Buffalo was 352,000 people at that point, with the African-American population being 1,698 thereabouts. And so uh, for these women to form uh, a club movement that had the strength uh, of numbers for them. Um, and, and at some point in 1900, um, they did not have 150 women, but shortly thereafter, somewhere a year later, uh, they had 150 members in the organization, which is significant. And so um, they were able to wield, I think, a lot of influence uh, with that number, even though the numbers of African Americans were fairly small. I have a photo, too, of Mary Burnett Talbert here. Uh, Mrs. Talbert uh, is a legend. Uh, she's not as well known uh, as she should be, I think, as a leader uh, in, uh, in movements. And we'll talk more about her leadership, but uh, she was the first secretary uh, of the Phyllis Club in Buffalo, and uh, as, as we talk about her and as we look at her accomplishments and her contributions, um, she was destined, certainly, to be a leader in the club movement uh, and elsewhere. Technology, okay, going forward. Uh, I just uh, pulled this article from an October 28th uh, newspaper and this is just one of the newspapers featuring uh, an announcement uh, about the launch of the club uh, at on that date in 1899. And I think it's significant in that it shows uh, the um, I guess the oh uh, 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 sophistication of the women in recognizing that they needed to publicize what they were doing to get support for it, and so they became very adept at PR, making sure they uh, got uh, their their activities publicized. Getting started, they may have launched in October 1899, but it was obvious that they really were already planning many, many activities, and they hit the ground running. Of course, first on their agenda was to invite the National Association of Colored Women's Clubs to hold its national convention in Buffalo during the Pan American Exposition. So they extended an invitation to the organization immediately to do that. They also advocated for inclusion in the Pan Am. Um, it, not just uh, for exhibits but also uh, for employment and other opportunities that they envisioned uh, would come as a result of this World's Fair. Um, they looked at education as, again, one of their major goals and so they placed books um, by black authors in libraries and schools. Um, they organized what they called Mother's Clubs to teach parenting. Um, they set up food drives and, and uh, food giveaways and didn't just limit it to the African-American poor in the community. They advocated for suffrage, uh, and uh, this year is really critical in the suffrage movement And that we're, uh, in 2020, we're celebrating the centennial of um, women getting the vote, but not all women got the vote in 1920. Uh, African American women didn't get the vote. Nonetheless, these women persisted in supporting suffrage uh, for women and they wanted also suffrage for men. So that came uh, later, of course, for African Americans. Uh, And they also uh, began fundraising efforts because they had a plan to uh, create and develop a settlement home. So here we have the outside of their clubhouse. Uh, the Michigan Street Baptist Church. And this is about how it looked at that, at that time. Uh, and as I said, you know, the advocacy for inclusion in activities in the Pan Am started just about when the group started in 1899. But by the next year, they, they didn't see the progress and the success they wanted. And so they decided that they were going to launch a protest rally. And uh, again, that was a bold move, uh, an audacious move uh, for, for black women at that time, probably any women at that time, but they did so. And while their goal was to get engagement and to get the, the uh, Negro exhibit uh, brought to the fair, and that exhibit really uh, was important, was critical in that it showed progress that African Americans had made since emancipation. In 1900, what the women were saying was that there were only two exhibits that were coming to the fair for sure, representing African-Americans. And both were pejoratives and in, in, or did not certainly uh, show African-American progress. One was the old plantation and the other was darkest Africa. Both exhibits on the midway where a great number of people would see them. Over 8 million people came to the Pan-American Exposition, and I would bet close to 8 million people went to the Midway. These exhibits were um, exhibits that were uh, peopled, I would say by people. Uh, In other words, there were inhabitants and residents that lived in these exhibits. On the old plantation, they had log cabins. Uh, They also had theaters in both of these exhibits, where um, the individuals who uh, were housed uh, in the exhibits did shows, um, dances, either of the slave dances or of the savage dances um, were done. They also had souvenir shops where they made implements and sold them to people. Um, the old plantation even had a cotton field. Can you imagine a cotton field in Buffalo? but they did, and uh, so these were uh, considered to be reflections uh, of African Americans at some point in history, but again, they were not reflective of where African Americans were in 1900, and so this is where um, the the protest rally uh, comes into play, and where Mary B. Talbert as the spokesperson for the Phyllis Wheatley Club gave a presentation which she entitled Why the afro american Should Be Represented at the Pan Am Expo. Now, unfortunately, this um, presentation uh, has been lost to history. We don't have a copy of it. Uh, Newspaper accounts uh, citing uh, the uh, protest rally and uh, uh, talking about a little bit about Mrs. Uh, Talbot's remarks uh, indicated that she certainly said Uh, detailed, quote, what she considered to be the essential requisites of such an exhibit. And I think she entitled the presentation the way she did, because in 1893, um, there was another protest that went on at the Columbia World's Fair uh, World Exposition in Chicago at that point. And that protest resulted in a a, um, pamphlet, produced by Ida B. Wells, which was the reason why the colored American is not at the Colombian World's Fair. Uh, and um, again, the world Fairs and the ways in which African Americans responded to them um, were uh, part of a national movement because African Americans realized, one, that um, as a result of being engaged in these fairs, they would be able to present a positive um, uh, picture, an image of the accomplishments of African-Americans since uh, being freed from slavery. Uh, and also, they should be able to benefit in um, the um, benefits of, of the financial and social benefits of the fair. And so they were very adamant, and, and Exel, uh were very frequently held uh, throughout the century. I should also point out, again, and I kind of went past your name, but um, there were only two other speakers at this uh, protest rally, uh, one being Mrs. A.D. Wilson, who was the president of the Women's Temperance Union. And again, this speaks to the ways in which the Phyllis Wheatley Club um, reached out to collaborate with other women's organizations, particularly white women's organizations and to get support from them and to support them in turn. And so Mrs. Wilson is seen at quite frankly several events that the organization uh, did and that she supported uh, and gave them, I think, larger credence uh, in the general community. The other speaker was an interesting individual by the name of James A. Ross, who was an attorney, although he didn't practice uh, too much law because he was engaged in any number of uh, careers, but he was a Democratic po- politician, uh, which was quite unusual at that point, since most African Americans were Republican. But um, Mr. Uh, Mr. Ross um, was even at one time considered to um, to be assigned uh, to uh, be the diplomat in Haiti. Uh, and uh, he was working uh, with the um, administration of the President over Cleveland at that time. Uh, for some reason, he declined the appointment, but he was very active nationally in democratic politics. Um, he also uh, had um, an idea and a goal and a, and a desire to be the legal exhibit manager. And through the years, there's been some confusion and secrecy around not only whether or not Mr. Ross was the manager, but whether or not the exhibit itself actually came to Buffalo. Um, that was part of my conversation uh, with the uh, Women's Pavilion colleague uh, who first told me about the protest rally and who first talked about the uh, Negro exhibit and some uh, question as to whether or not that exhibit really existed. Uh, And uh, so, again, it's it's kind of part of the mystery that intrigued me about the the Pan Am and the role that the uh, Service Week Club played in Pan Am. Uh, As you can see, I've listed some other things here that um, Mr. Ross did. Uh, He was an editor uh, and a publisher of a number of newspapers, including The Globe and Freeman, which, uh, interestingly enough, published the pamphlet which accompanied the Negro exhibit at the Pan American Exposition. And that pamphlet itself was also interesting in that it was the only one that had paid advertising in it. Uh, uh, thanks, I think, to, um, to, to Mr. Ross. Um, but Mr. Ross also, uh, defended, uh, James B. Parker, um, the McKinley assassination hero, uh, even hired Mr. Parker to um, be a salesman for another newspaper that he published called The Gazetteer and Guide. Uh, And I'll say one thing more about Mr. Parker before moving on. I have a picture here of his cigar store. So again, he was an entrepreneur. uh, And uh, this this photo was actually uh, one of the pictures in the Negro exhibit, uh, which uh, displayed the businesses that African Americans owned. All right, so the women uh, held the protest rally, and it was successful. In December, they found out that um, the fair had agreed, the fair managers had agreed to bring the Negro exhibit to Buffalo for the Pan American Exposition. So they didn't rest on their laurels, though. They continued, I think, to develop, uh, again, for the community a sense that African Americans had more accomplishments and contributions than the old plantation or darkest Africa were going to show them when they went to the fair. So they developed a pageant which they put on on April 19th, 1901, which was actually about two weeks before the fair was to open because the exposition exposition was opening on May 1st. And 30 Years of Freedom uh, was a, uh, a pageant, as I said, that was organized by the Phyllis Wheatley Club. Um, there were three narrators who uh, introduced uh, each of the acts uh, in, the, uh, in the play. Um, Edward Crosby, who was the first journalist hired by the Buffalo Times, first African American journalist hired by the Buffalo Times newspaper. Mary B. Talbert, again, and Reverend uh, J. Edward Nash, who was the longtime uh, pastor of the Michigan Street Baptist Church. Uh, the um, women of uh, the Philips Weekly Club, again, reached out to women in the community, particularly the, um, the social elite, the socially elite women, um, who could help support them financially and asked them to be honorary chairs of this event. It was a fundraising event to raise money uh, also for the settlement home. And um, according to the newspapers, it was quite successful. It had between 1,500 and 2,000 uh, individuals attend, mostly white individuals, and as the newspaper said, uh, some better class of the race. Um, they raised about $500. I'm not sure um, what that um, translates to in um, $2,020, but I suspect it was a hefty sum. Again, um, using their PR, the women uh, got wonderful coverage in the newspapers uh, about the, uh, the play and about the um, uh, cause that uh, this play was supporting. As I said, it was a three-act production with eight scenes. with a cast 200 men, women and children who performed in the site. Uh, The acts were, as described here, slavery, freedom, education. So in a sense, again, they were um, laying out the case for the progression of African American accomplishment and achievement, uh, and they did so um, by a musical. I love this quote and I'm sure that the um the organizers Loved it too in that the newspaper said the entertainment opened the eyes of the white folk who saw it. They had no idea that persons of such talent could be found among the colored population of Buffalo. That was in the Express on the 20th. As I said, the Sillis Weekly Club was successful in bringing uh, the Negro exhibit to Buffalo, uh, the um, award-winning Exhibit and received 17 gold medals in um, Paris. It was coordinated or curated by W. E. B. Du Bois. Now, Mr. Du Bois did not come to Buffalo with the exhibit, but he did send the um, curator uh, from the the government to Mr. Callahan, um, who we see there uh, seated. I'm not sure if he's the, the one who's seated or standing. The other individual, I believe, is is Mr. Ross. Um, we don't have exact confirmation that, but the exhibit itself again featured uh through displays, uh through photographs, through uh scrapbooks, um, through um, all kinds of um, exhibits of artistic um, and uh art- artistic work, sculptural work by African Americans. Uh it was uh placed in the liberal arts building. So as compared to the Darkest Africa and the old plantation, it was not um, readily available or seen. It was also um, made a smaller, was given a smaller footprint than the exhibit in um, Paris. Uh, the Paris exhibit actually had been supported by the federal government who gave Du Bois $15,000 in order to put this on, so um, as I said, it was a major achievement for the woman, the women, nonetheless, in being able to get the exhibit here. And again, uh, and know that they promoted it as much as they promoted everything that they did. The pamphlet um, that was produced by Mr. Ross and his newspaper, uh, as I said, for some time was in doubt as to whether or not the Negro exhibit was actually uh, in Buffalo because of its placement and all the controversy associated with it. Uh, And this is a um, a story, a a publication uh, put out by the Buffalo and Erie County Library, which actually had the original has the original pamphlet uh, and scrapbook um, that has all the pamphlets and publications from the the Pan Am, uh, and as the community was getting ready to celebrate the centennial of the Pan Am, this publication uh, was produced that verified um, the placement of the exhibit, uh, the curator of the exhibit, um, the, the ads that were placed, and the fact that the pamphlet was also unusual and that it lists some Buffalo residents Uh, at least leading black journals and journalists. Of course, since Mr. Um, uh, Mr. Ross was a journalist, uh, he would of course make sure that his publications were there. And there were several personal messages from Mr. Ross uh, that uh, were part of this um, pamphlet and quite an extraordinary and significant sign and uh, if you ever have an opportunity to get the publication that was done by by the um, library. It uh, certainly was worth uh, taking a look at. All right, so the women were successful in getting the the Negro exhibit into uh, Buffalo, but of course they didn't rest on their laurels there. As I said, they had another goal and that was to get the conference here of the National Association of Colored Women's Clubs which they again were able to do Uh, from July 7th to the 11th. They met in Buffalo, and this is uh, the lovely uh, Mary Church Terrell, and she was the president of the organization. At that point, the very first president, uh, she's stepping down and a new president was being elected. Um, This conference was attended by a number of nationally known prominent women who were all part of the NACW. Mrs. Booker T. Washington, for one. Um, Mrs. Blanche K. Bruce, the, the widow, uh, one of the first black representatives in US Congress. Mrs. Rosetta Sprague, who was the daughter of Frederick Douglass. There were 250 delegates and guests who came to this conference, this convention, and of course that infused um, Buffalo and the fair with uh, finances. Uh, They were welcomed by Mayor Kennedy of Buffalo. As I said, generated a lot of publicity and they were about their business of working on um, making sure that they um, throughout the country coordinated their activities to improve the lives of African Americans uh, and to generate positive uh, imagery of African American accomplishment. they also had sessions where uh, the issues that were of primary, uh, primary importance to them were highlighted. Um, convict lease system, lynching, uh, kindergarten education, parenting. These were all, all areas uh, under which programs were to be developed. Um, Mary Talbert's uh, presentation was on reasons for placing correct literature before our children. So, uh, again, uh, she was involved with Phyllis Sweetly Club, and we find later that she um, becomes a very integral part of the national organization as well. Uh, African Americans in Buffalo did not stop with, um, again, advocating for the Negro exhibit or advocating for the conference to come. Um, they, they were involved and engaged in a lot of entrepreneurial efforts. Uh, as a matter of fact, um, there was a group formed in which they um, wanted to build a hotel that would be owned and operated by African Americans. And uh, Mr. Ross was involved in that endeavor. Um, but they also got the, uh, the board of managers to organize or to formulate what they called the a committee of comfort. And the Committee of Comfort uh, was charged with uh, um, reaching out to African-Americans nationally. Uh, They sent out letters to um, um, black newspapers throughout the country inviting African-Americans to the fair, uh, ensuring them that they would be welcome, ensuring them that they would not be discriminated against, which uh, were some problems that um, that they encountered at other fairs. Uh, and uh, really worked within the community as well to identify uh, African Americans who would provide housing to um, visitors when they came in. And the housing wasn't to be free. Um, they were actually renting out to visitors to ensure that there was a broad um, a spectrum of base of, of homes, of residences and hotels uh, and boarding homes where African American visitors could be welcomed uh, during their stay here in the city for the expo. There were members of the community who bought Pan Am stock. Unfortunately, the the Pan Am wasn't financially successful, but at that time, um, they thought it would be. And the stock was not cheap, Uh, it was $10 um, a a stock. And so um, there were members, however, that were able to, to invest in the fair and they did that. Um, they also hosted welcoming parties, uh, again, trying to encourage and to uh, support um, African Americans who were visiting the city to ensure that they had a good time to ensure that they felt welcome to the city. So what was the impact um, of the African American protest? Uh, I think it started with the protest, but certainly as I indicated, uh, community-wide, there were many activities and many groups uh, who came together, worked with the Phyllis Wheatley Club, worked independently to um, ensure that African-Americans had a place in the Pan-American Exposition. Um, we had the successful placement of the Negro exhibit, which uh, is a testament to the results. Uh, of their advocacy. I just mentioned the Committee of Comfort. Um, Albert Thomas, who also was an attorney, actually he was a Yale graduate, and a graduate of this university in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, and he was appointed to uh, the Bureau of Information, and he was the highest um, appointee in the African American community to work at the fair. Um, there were some other jobs, certainly, that uh, African-Americans got as a result of the fair business. After all, uh, James Parker, the um, African-American involved in the McKinley assassination, we call him the hero, um, and um, uh, was the waiter uh, in, uh, at the fair. Uh, I think a major part of what the women did um, was to ignore the degrading exhibits In other words, they did not just, um, they uh, they focused on the positives of the uh, Negro exhibit, and they downgraded, essentially, um, any attention being paid to the degrading exhibits uh, of the um, Darkest Africa and the old plantation. Um, Their activities and their work uh, established they, so the Phyllis Club is a strong advocacy group in the city, and I believe it prepared the community for the Niagara Movement, which we'll talk about in a minute. I mentioned James Benjamin Parker, because certainly um, you can't talk about the Pan American Exposition uh, without uh, talking about or thinking about the fact that um, the, uh, President McKinley was assassinated at that convention and that um, his assassination uh, by Leon Starboss um, was uh, interrupted um, by a man by the name of James Parker, an African-American man, uh, who prevented Sarboss from firing the third bullet at McKinley and killing him instantly. Uh, however, um, great controversy uh, occurred around uh, Mr. Parker's acts uh, he was declared a hero until such time as uh, he was uh, not declared a hero. Uh, and uh, it, it, there's another uh, 100-year-old-plus mystery that has uh, continued to um, you know, really uh, uh, accompany the history of the Pan-American Exposition. Uh, Mr. Parker's story deserves a presentation of its own, and I hope to do that at another time but we don't want to forget that uh, uh, he had an important role to play at the Pan Am, and when he was discredited um, by some who felt that he had not actually prevented the, the uh, assassins from firing a third bullet, um, the African American community as a whole were outraged. They were incensed. Uh, nationwide, they were incensed, and uh, there was a lot of uh, work to uh, help to Mr. Parker to tell his story. Ultimately, um, Mr. Ross stepped in at one point and uh, tried to help Mr. Parker to tell his part of the, his side of the story and to vindicate him uh, from the, um, the backlash he received uh, from people who said he was lying. Uh, and um, when Mr. Parker left town, uh, he left to work as a... Um, salesman, the traveling salesman, for one of the papers that Mr. Ross produced. As I said, that's a whole other story. Okay, so following their activities in 1901, as I said, these women did not rest on their laurels. They continued to push forward. They continued to work for what they believed was important. And um, the Michigan Street Baptist Church continued to be a central focus uh, point for their meetings and for their activities. In 1902, they again came to the